the meanwhile, I spent six minutes on a on the phone today convincing a woman um, to calm down uh, because she was just so upset that maybe maybe she had somehow accidentally voted for Ted Cruz. Oh, oh my I mean, that's a mood. That <laughs> it, it really is. And welcome to your favorite problematic. I'm Elizabeth, and I'm Kristen, and this is a podcast where we ruin all your favorite things. Yeah, so deal with it. I'm pretty sure you've said that one before, Kristen, but that's fine. Uh, you know what? Leave me alone. Uh, <laughs> doing my best here. Uh, this is a special episode. It's going to be a little different from our normal episode. I think you'll like it. Yeah, uh, we're not necessarily doing a problematic fave. Actually, I think we're just well. Today's election. It says yes. It's an election edition. So yeah. Exactly. So I guess like America at this point is my prize, my most problematic thing. <laughs> like, okay, that's the realest thing ever, though. That's absolutely true. Uh, yeah, so we're going to be talking a little bit about the 2018 election midterms that are happening here in the U.S. right now, uh, particularly talking about women running for office and why that is still a thing we need to even talk about. <laughs> <laughs> 2018. Why well, is this list. Issue, But <laughs> here we are. That's fine. And we have a special guest with us who works for Annie's List. Uh, Kristen, she's she's your friend. You okay. want to you want to introduce her? I like to think of Kim as all of our friends. That's true. I mean, she's doing the Lord's work, so you're not wrong about that. She is. So, well, I guess we should probably explain what Annie's List is first. Um, so, Annie's List, uh, and Kim, you can correct me if I mess up any of this. Annie's List is a political action uh, committee, and uh, essentially what they do is they help elect progressive Democratic women in Texas. So, I think that uh, the, a lot of the focus goes to teaching women what it takes to run for office or kind of like convincing them to run for office. Kim, I feel like you probably could tell us a little bit better what Annie's List does, and, and particularly your, your role at Annie's List. Why, thank you, Kristen. Um, so Annie's List, we are a pack. That means we are hard money. So we um, play a direct role in supporting women when they run, um, not only in coaching them and preparing them and training them, but by donating to their campaigns and um, you know providing staff support. So you know our entire staff will be working for different candidates who we've endorsed on election day. So we um, have been around for 15 years and we were started... Uh, Kristen, you may recall uh, what Texas was like in 2003. That's when, fact, I do. Uh, when uh, the Texas legislature had extra taken up uh, redistricting so as to extra screw all of the uh, <laughs> Democratic, Democrats in Texas. And um, so Annie's List started really as a, as a way to uh, really aggressively take on electing progressive women into office. And we're modeled after Emily's List, which um, many of you West Wing fans or just electing women fans may uh, be familiar with. They're a national pack. And I will say Emily is a, what is the word called when the letters all stand for something? An acronym? Yeah. So early money is like yeast is Emily's list. Annie's list is not. Uh, when I first learned about Annie's list, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what Annie could stand for. 
It's, uh, <laughs> now, you were supposed it, to Google that bef- before you went in for your interview, Kim. Well, no, this was back in 2004 when I first learned about the organization, uh, long before I ever worked there. But uh, Annie Webb Blanton was the first woman elected to statewide office in Texas. So uh, that is that is where Annie came from. And so um, we have 37 endorsed candidates on the ballot this year, which is our largest election ever. Um, we've endorsed candidates from, you know, the, the statewide offices, you know, with Lupe Valdez running for governor, you know, down to, you know, county commissioner offices with um, this fabulous woman um, who everyone should hope to get to vote for someday, Devin Allen, who's running for place two in Tarrant County. So most of our candidates are, are legislative candidates for the House and the Senate. And it's, I don't know, it's going to happen. <laughs> my my very favorite thing about political campaigns is that they end and uh and, and you, were, you were a campaign manager at one point yes oh i was a lowly staffer Kristen. um she, right <laughs> right like, together i think at this point mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so i moved out of the apartment that we shared when our lease was up to move in briefly with the campaign manager on the campaign that i worked on and um she only had one bathroom and so when i was showering she would she wouldn't like pull by the shower curtain but she would come in and be like let's have a staff meeting and it was like boundaries, <laughs> boundaries, boundaries. <laughs> um so that actually probably set a good precedent for what it's like to work in politics um they moved, they moved me in with a different campaign supporter who let me shower in peace um who i'm so- <laughs> Who I'm still friends with, who my second daughter is named after. Um, Louise is her middle name, like um, like the woman I lived with on the campaign. Anyway, so that was 14 years ago that I was that I was working on a political campaign, and then uh, in two, in 2016 when I moved uh, from DC back to Texas, I got hired at Annie's List to oversee all of their training programs. So this is how we get women prepared to run for office. Both you know how do you actually run a campaign. Um, how do you staff a campaign? You know, we did we did some kind of one-off uh, deep dives on communication, and we've really expanded that suite of trainings now to to really focus also on bringing women into politics and getting women to think about what it will take to run for office. And you know, come come for two hours, have a beer, hear from people who've done it before we ask you to come and spend seven hours um, learning how to oversee your own campaign for office. Which I recognize that I am maybe not reflective of all of the population of people who listen to this podcast, but I think these things are very fun and enjoy doing, <laughs> doing, I enjoy teaching these things, um, you know, six to 12 times a year. So that's fun. I was going to say, having known you for, at this point, I think it's been 21 years. It, I, this really sounds like the perfect job for you. Yeah. So you've known me longer than you've not known me. Um, in, in the course of your life. And I will say, so my kind of probably my most proud fun fact about this election is that I have personally trained more than a thousand women, um, since I've had this job and Annie's list has trained a thousand, more than a thousand women since this election cycle. So, so we weren't kidding when we said you're really doing the Lord's work, particularly like Texas. You know, I I just want to point out before we go any further that Texas is the state of Barbara Jordan and Ann Richards. So We have, some, we have some precedent um, when it comes to electing fantastic women. And um, I believe that, that we will set further precedent. I was, I was maybe going to make a, what's his name? Who's the one that doesn't believe in precedent on the Supreme Court? Clarence Thomas. Yeah, that's the one. I was maybe going to make a Clarence Thomas joke, <laughs> but then I just said this instead. 
this was your Clarence Thomas joke. I will tell you, having having lived in California for, I guess, a total of five years at this point, it is one of my biggest frustrations in the world. People were like, oh, Texas is a, a super deep red state. And I'm like, no, Texas is a non-voting state. And like, mm-hmm. and like, do you guys even know what Democrats are? It's like, have you heard of Ann Richards? Uh-huh. Yeah, we've had that conversation on the podcast before, Kristen, where it's like, if you look at the the breakdown, like the popular vote in Texas over the last, last even three presidential elections, it's like a, you know, a 45-55 split. And people are like, oh, like Texas is super red. I'm like, no, like look at the popular yeah. vote. Look at those uh, counties, especially further south along the border. They're, they all go blue. All the big cities yeah. go blue. It's when you get out into, you know, yeah, well, except for DFD, except for Fort Worth, but that's, we're getting... Fort Worth doesn't, but, like, Dallas but, usually goes blue, you know, like, it's, like, uh, there are a lot more Democrats in Texas than I think most people realize. <laughs> I think we can, and we can talk about why that is, Kim. I'm sure you have some uh, particular <laughs> insight into that. Yeah. Um, well, Kim, well, real quick, before we get too far into it, why don't you tell us what you do for Annie's List? Right. Thank you. So I am the one who uh, puts together the curriculum and oversees those trainings. Um, That's one part of my job. So that's a lot of it. But also I work with our community leaders around the state who organize to help us connect with more women candidates and support the candidates who we've endorsed in the major metros around the state. So... Uh, oh, and then I oversee our intern program, which is uh, if you ever need to feel better about the world, read intern applications from young women and men who want to elect women. That's how I got through the 16 election was uh, right in my very dark apartment as I was on like half maternity leave, reading applications from uh, from young people who want to create a better future. So oh, I just got the warm fuzzies. That's wonderful. Yeah. Although I will say you left off uh, the most prestigious part of your resume, which is playing scandalized fainting town person in uh, <gasps> 1998 production of The Music Man at L.C. Anderson High School. Oh. <laughs> Kristen, I fainted in Lil Abner. Oh my, wait, no, you fainted in Music Man. I fainted. I, well, Just clearly, fainted. I have a type. <laughs> um, yes, I have been. I've been typecast uh, as as a woman who reacts to things. Yes, so I I, I have reacted in all of the plays. Um, yes, so Kristen got to sing and be amazing, and I got to react. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's wonderful! Awesome. Uh, well, before we we dive too far into the discussion, because there's definitely a lot to talk about, we always when we have guests, we ask them to play a little game with us, and that game is fuck, Mary kill. That's right. And we figured since we're talking about women in politics, it was only fitting to fuck, Mary kill three fictional women in politics. Kristen, would you like to tell us who those are? (laughs) Yes. So uh, the three that we have selected for you this evening, Kim, are uh, one, Leslie Nope. (sighs) Then next up, we have Claire Underwood. Mm. And finally, we have Selena Byers of Veep fame. Okay. For sure, fuck Selena Meyer, kill Claire Underwood, and marry Leslie Nope because I would have so many waffles and binders. <laughs> <laughs> it would be amazing. <laughs> so that's that was fun. Thanks, guys. Uh, wait, I want to know why you kill Claire Underwood, though. Yes, that's I need cool. to know your justifications. For Honestly, I'm I'm the least emotionally attached to Claire Underwood, okay. and I feel like long term. She's the one who could cause me the most damage. And with Selena, I just, I just feel like she's, she's a passionate lady. She'd get into it. So, yeah. like, let's, let's just do it. 
Sounds okay. great. Okay. I like it. I love it. Yeah. Liz, you want to go next? Yeah, sure. Uh, okay. Geez. I think, I think Kim is right. You marry Leslie Nope because obviously uh, I could eat breakfast forever. Um, Leslie Nope is the best person in the world. Like why, why would you not marry Leslie Nope? Like someone explain this to me. I think, I think that's who you marry. I think, I think I kill Selena Myers. I don't, I don't know. She just kind of makes me a little crazy. She's, there's something about her that like, it's like this level of dysfunction that I kind of can't handle. And like being attached to that would, would make me a little bit insane. Um, I'm, I'm not here for the hijinks in my like romantic or sexual life. So I just, I can't do that. And I think you fuck Claire Underwood because a Robin Wright is an absolute babe. Holy shit. Mm. Also, I mean like now we're just going to kill Frank Underwood because Kevin Spacey is trash. But uh, even like prior to that, like they were like canonically non-monogamous. So I just know that like if we kept it on the DL, we could fuck as much as we wanted. And like no one's, it's never going to be a problem. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Okay. And also she's an ambitious lady and I like ambitious ladies. So, and she's going to be president. So that's fine. Okay. So uh, I like that we all have different answers (laughs) and I will, uh, you know, I'll preface this by saying that I've only watched the first three seasons of House of Cards. Um, So I am not caught up. Uh, So I think that my answer is I'm going to, I'm going to kill Leslie Nope. <gasps> yeah, I no, Kristen. <laughs> I'm gonna kill Leslie. Nope. Listen, Amy Poehler is great. I love her. We talked about her before. You know, she's got her problems, so I love her. Um, no, okay. So Leslie Nope is just she's just a little too much for me, right? I, I mean, like, I feel like if I had to spend like a week in the same room with her, uh, she'd be dead. I would. I would go to prison. <laughs> I could. I could see that happening for you. Yes, absolutely. And so you know, I. I I feel like that's the best decision for me is to just, yeah, I have to kill out Leslie. Um, and so that leaves Selena and Claire. I think that I am going to fuck Selena and marry Claire. Okay. And I think it's because they're both kind of like equally, you know, evil, I guess. Well, not <laughs> no, no, equally, but like, you know, there's that, like that kind of uh, selfish, nefarious energy there, but I love Claire's ambition. I really <laughs> do. I feel like Claire and I could take over the world and you know no, what? Totally. Like we would be, we would be dictators, but we'd be like the best, <laughs> most benevolent dictators you'd ever met. Like we, I feel like we would just be like a number one power couple. So I'm here for Mary and Claire Underwood. Mm-hmm. It would be great. And yeah, and Selena just seems like she's, well, I mean, Julie Louis-Dreyfus is a fox and uh, she's just got that kind of like fun, playful, sexy energy. So yeah, that's my answer. Kristen, I like how your, your Marys always come down to like, who has money and power? That's <laughs> what I <laughs> Like, this is a established pattern in our Games of Fuck, Mary Kill. I wouldn't podcast. want to disappoint our audience. So. <laughs> like, forget love or compatibility. Like, we could. Oh, I really think we'd be compatible. I'm sure that I could love her, but I'm just saying is that like, I admire her ambition, and yeah, we could take over the world. What's that like? like? Look, look, would, would I be okay with you and Claire Underwood taking over the world? Absolutely. I feel like we do a fine job. Yeah. I, I, I think you're correct. Okay, cool. Uh, well, that's great. As always, uh, tweet at us or post in the Facebook group and let us know what your, your feelings on this FMK are because I always like reading people's justifications. And then, yeah, let's, let's get into it a little bit because, you know, I've seen a lot of articles talking about how this 2018 election is the most important election of our lifetime. Mm-hmm. This is the new year of the woman, too. That's the other kind of phrase I'm hearing. Yeah. To be fair, uh, the most important election of our lifetime is a thing they kind of say about every election, but it definitely feels relevant to this one in particular. Mm-hmm. 
given the state of our country right now. <laughs> it feels like it will be a kind of like even more so than 2016, a bit of a bellwether for like whether or not our democracy will survive. <laughs> I completely agree about that because boy, howdy, are there a lot of issues, a lot of like voter suppression and stuff just running amok yeah. right now. But that also um, feels like a lot of pressure. It, it um, does. Mm-hmm. But, but is it wrong? No, I just want to sleep. Like, I just want to be able to sleep knowing that, like, if I didn't do my job well enough, I didn't cause the world to end. But whatever, we're good. We're good. It's not about me. So no, every- you've, only got, you've only got a few more days left. We're fine. We're You're fine. Only- we're maybe not fine, but we're fine. <laughs> we're so, fine. Uh, I think it's notable that uh, more women are running in, for office in this election than ever before, which is, I think, part of the reason this election is so important for us. You know, we still don't have like representation for women in no. like, office like we do in the population, right? Like it is not a 50-50 split in Congress yeah. or at, in the, at the state Senate level or whatever. Um, yeah, I think it's let's. I think it's important to kind of like get uh, like an idea of where our current state of representation is, like both congressional, yeah. like, you know, the United States Congress, but also for our state legislatures. Right, it's between twenty and thirty percent up and down mm-hmm. that um, that women are uh, right. While fifty one percent of the population, we're you know at the congressional level, I believe, is it tw- at, at no at the Texas congressional level, we're at twenty percent. Okay, that's actually slightly higher than the United States Congress, which the, when uh, when I checked, nineteen, nineteen, yeah, yeah. But in many state legislators, legislatures, the national average is at twenty five, and then somehow Arizona is the closest to fifty <laughs> fifty. Um, but the super depressing. Let's all cry for a minute about uh, about the state of our representational democracy. Is that. Um, when they crunched the numbers in 2016, what they found was that if we continued to increase women's representation at the same rate we were increasing, because there was a big, there was a big increase in the early nineties, like the first year of the woman following the Anita Hill interviews, all that, all that madness, uh, right. Big surge in women, big uptick, right. Big uptick in the seventies, big uptick in the nineties. But with, at the rate that we are currently adding women, it would be 2117 before we reached parity. So literally a hundred years from now, uh, but yes. from today. Cool. So like not our moms, but our great grandkids that would get to see parody. And that's, I don't, I don't know how else to say like, that's what we are fighting against is like, that's not a foregone conclusion. That is not, you know, in the hall of secrets, a little ball that says it'll be 2117 before there's parody. Like we can change that outcome. We can change the trajectory, um, which is what we really, my sincere hope is that that's what 2018 is. It's not a blip. It's a new trajectory for women running because women, when women run, women win at the same rate as men. Um, it is that we run at a much smaller rate. And there's like a sub rant about how we'd be also much closer to parity if Republican women ran at the same rate as Democratic women. But we can get back to that rant later. I <laughs> <laughs> will say I appreciate the Harry Potter reference. That's absolutely yes. the place for this. I, I absolutely appreciate it as well. But also it kind of, it leads me to the question, and this is just kind of, you know, it just occurred to me. I wonder if hearing statistics like that for you, for someone where this is like this, you're in the trenches every day, this is your job. Does that like, does it make you tired? Like, I mean, does it, it does it feel <laughs> like it's this insurmountable obstacle or does it like propel you to work harder? Like how do, how do you? How do you yeah. live with that when this is your job? Right. It, it means that I can do a little and have it mean a lot, if that makes sense. Like it's, Mm-mm. it's, I wouldn't say that it discourages me or it inspires me. It is just like the state of where we are now. 
And, uh, and so it's right. It's a baseline and that's the place from which we grow. And so I think I like the shock value of it, honestly, because I think that it puts, it helps people realize that doing nothing leads to nothing being different. Mm -hmm. And so, so I appreciate that about the statistic. I, I do not believe that it will actually be 21. I believe that we will change the rate at which we elect women. So it's, it's depressing to say, but then also it's like, I, it, it really is trying to um, maybe light a fire under some other folks' tushes uh, to, to care about this more. And uh, one of the encouraging pieces of research as well um, that I reference often, uh, and I just want to say the Barbara Lee Family Foundation has done some really excellent research about women and running for office. They're nonpartisan. I'm very partisan. My heart is partisan. <laughs> my money, <laughs> right. My money is partisan. All of me is partisan at this point. And, uh, but their research is nonpartisan. And, uh, what, what they found was that in this moment where more, more women are running, more voters than ever are interested in electing more women. There seems to be a greater recognition that not only are women underrepresented, but that women lead differently and that it matters that we have women's leadership in office. And one of my favorite little tidbits from this uh, bit of research is that women are so underrepresented that in many ways we are seen as outsiders and that same outsider wave that helped elect some people to the presidency <laughs> um, is actually helpful to women. And that when there's a, when there's this great distrust of government, being seen as an outsider is helpful to you. Um, so this kind of, we are anti-establishment because we have not really been allowed to be part of the establishment. Um, and there are some, like, there are some exceptions to that. I think Hillary Clinton was like the only woman who could possibly have been the establishment, but also what woman who wasn't the establishment could have been nominated to be the first woman, um, right. Exactly. Nominated for president of a major party. It's yeah. Yeah. Catch 22 there. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I got, we could go for a while on that, but let's not. So, or we should. But I think it's, it's notable that, that there is a different perception out there among voters. And um, we can talk a lot more about voters' perceptions because voters' perceptions play a big role in women in running for office. But, um, but I will let y'all talk more about numbers. Okay. I like numbers and I have some in front of me. So I can just, why don't I just like chew out some statistics real quick? Cause yeah, sure. doing, I don't know, doing this research was really interesting to me because you know, like we're seeing women running in much larger numbers than ever before. Um, for instance, 13 women are running for governor and the U.S. has never had more than nine women governors at a time. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's a big deal. That's pretty interesting. These are statistics that it didn't surprise me, but still blew my mind a little bit. So 56% so of the women who are running for a governorship right now have previous experience as an elected official compared with just 37% of men. And then 80% of women running for the Senate have previously held elected official compared to, wait for it, just 22% of men. Of My next running note for just United says, States a it? fucking course, are you kidding me? <laughs> Like, I just want to clarify what you said. So 20, 22% of men who are currently running for a United States Senate have had, have like political experience, have like, have been elected officials before. Is that what you're saying? That's what my notes say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I wanted to make sure that I, that I understood that like accurately before I reacted to it. What the fuck? Like <laughs> that, yeah, that was basically my response because 
I mean, well, I mean, like, I, I love that on my notes. Like, Kim, you have gone in and added exactly what I would have said. Yeah. About, this is, you know, very typical for any woman. Like, you know, like when a man sees a job posting, he's like, oh, yeah, I can do like five of those 10 things. And the woman's like, oh, I can do all of those. So now I'll apply. But women mm-hmm. tend to not apply for jobs if they don't check all of the boxes, whereas yes. men just apply and pray, basically. Uh, and then they I get hired, right? I don't think they put that much effort into the prayer. <laughs> But, but one of the things I want to point out again is that one of the things that has been shown in research is that women are held to a higher standard than men when they run. Sure. Like men can run with 60% and women have to be at 100 because men are expected to be credible and women are expected to be credible and likable. Um, and it's harder for a woman to be seen as credible than it is for a man. So, so in many ways, it's, it's reading the room it's understanding that voters still have different expectations for women who run than they do for men. Well, it actually kind of, that's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I feel like women know that though. And mm-hmm. I feel like that kind of figures into this. And this is something I'm really interested to get your perspective on, Kim. So there's this kind of, there are two schools of thought about why women don't run and whether, you know, in, in its relationship to like women's ambition as though we are a monolith when it comes to that, right? Yeah, of And course. so I'm wondering if like, this, uh, you know, women who know that like, hey, I have to be like qualified and likable. Um, if that factors into their, their confidence when it comes to running or whether or not this is actually a thing. I mean, like, is this bullshit? Is it that women just aren't as ambitious mm-hmm. and that they're less, mm-hmm. secure, you know, they're more mm-hmm. insecure about running for office? Like, what has been your experience? And then we can talk about like some of the studies that we found. Okay. So my personal experience, uh, working from it. So when we do one of our trainings, the first thing that we, I, one of the first questions I ask the room is why run for office? And you hear women say things like, you know, because I want to make a difference. I want to lead by example. I'm unhappy with the current state of things. Like I want to make a difference. Like I want a better community or I'm just, I know that we can be doing better. And then the next question I ask is why not run for office? And it's money and it's time. And it's the fear of who all of of exposing their family and others to the kind of scrutiny that comes with running for office. And so I find it insulting to say that ambition plays a role in women's choice to run for office. Women have all kinds of ambition, but from an early age, women have been encouraged to express their ambition in other ways. And by that, I mean, um, women aren't told, women aren't asked at the same rate as men to consider using their talents in public office. Like it just, it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm personally an exception to that. Like I, I am someone whose grandmother told her that she was going to be the first woman president of the United States. And that, right. That makes me the exception. You know, that grandma, Kristen, it's, I um, Betty Jo. Yes, Betty Jo. Betty Jo. She said that her grandmother told her that she was going to be the first woman president. Aww, so, that's so, sweet. <laughs> yeah, and but but it's like a sweet thing that happens to like four percent of us. Yeah, but no, it's not a lack of ambition. It is it is the perceived barriers being so overwhelming, and and we can talk more about those barriers. But it's I would never say it's a lack of ambition. Women achieve so much. Women have so much ambition. It's just how we know where to use it and when to use it and how to use it. It's, um, it's, it's, we're not in, we don't know the things. And that's one of the interesting points about that, that HP study, the one about, you know, how men only have to have 60% of the qualifications to apply for a job. Men will apply at 60%. Women have to be at a hundred. 
is that it's not that women lack confidence to apply for jobs. It's that we don't know we're supposed to apply for a job with 60% of it, right? right? Like if right. there's, there are knowledge barriers there, right? They're real. Like Cinderella couldn't go to the ball because she had to do all the sweeping and she had no fancy dress to wear and you can't show up at the ball with a broom and I guess mice on your person um that's probably yeah (laughs) we're going somewhere with this um so so right when women are still disproportionately responsible for childcare and housework despite two-thirds of households with children having two working parents there is the perception that there is not the time um that there is not the opportunity there's not the option to do that and um yeah, it's compounded by people's expectations, which again, I don't know if y'all want me to go into that yet, but, but I think, I think that framing it as ambition is using a male lens for thinking of how women get into politics. I, I'm, I'm glad you shared your perspective with us. I think that, well, I mean, it's something that I, that I think people hear all the time and it's hard to, it's hard to know whether or not that's true. I mean, like I, I, people have very, uh, you know, I think, uh, irresponsibly suggested that I should run for office when I go on political. <laughs> <laughs> and I, listen, I'd give you, I'd give you 50 bucks. <laughs> my, my response is usually that I had way too much fun in my twenties to run for office in my thirties. I believe that excuse is dead now. No, I, I was just going to say still, like, now yeah. that we have like a bankrupt game show host as our president. I feel like that doesn't matter. <laughs> Well, also, too, we're getting to the point where folks of our generation are running when and social media has been a thing. So literally everyone is probably going to have at least one embarrassing video of them posted in like <laughs> the depths of, you know, Zanga or MySpace or whatever, right? Well, yeah, exactly. Also, I have no ambition to be, like to run for office. I don't want to. No, of course. I know. I, yeah, but I think that it's it's important. I'm glad that you made that point, Kim. I think it's important to kind of like first of all reframe how we think about what ambition means, right? Yeah. Right? Like women are so ambitious in so many other aspects of life, but somehow that doesn't matter if they're not seeking power. If they're not seeking. Mm-hmm you know, be in control. But uh, I think that that probably leads us to a discussion of maybe what some of those barriers that you hear in those discussions uh, are some of those, uh, the ex- I don't want to say excuses, but the justifications mm-hmm. that women give you for not running for office. What are some of those? And what, um, you know, did, I don't want to say do they matter, but like, how much do they matter? Some are just, you know, some are the easiest ones to overcome. Like, I don't know what I would run for, or I don't know how to even get started. Like that's the kind of thing that you can teach away. Some of them are uh, rooted in things like, I don't feel like I have the time right now. And like that, that takes, it's not insurmountable, but it, but it's real. Like time is your most valuable non-renewable resource, right? You, you, you can make money, right? You can get more money. We can figure out how to do that, but we can't get more time. And so that is, I think, time and money are the two biggest barriers women perceive because there's also a fear of asking for money. And so much of politics is asking for money. And so much of asking for money is knowing who to ask for money. Like, I could craft the most eloquent and persuasive ask for money. But if I don't have the connections to the people to ask it to, I'm not going to get any money. Right. And so, so like, there are so many things rooted in just not yet being part of the system or not being a part of, or not perceiving yourself yet as part of the system. So one of the things we talk about in these trainings is what communities are you a part of? Because those are the communities that will help elect you. You just don't yet see that as being your power because right, knowledge is not power. Relationship is power. 
And so learning to look differently at your relationships and see how that can actually benefit you is, is really part of it. Uh, is, is thinking differently about the assets you do have versus being so focused on what you don't have. So find the folks who are already invested in you, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, because the people who you have been working with, those are the people who know, trust, and like want to, and who share values with you. They want to see your shared values flourish by having elected leaders who share them. And so, you know, if you've been working with teachers, if you've been working in the PTA, if you've been working with different, you know, community initiatives to, um, to feed kids or clothe kids or, I went with bathe because that's one of the things that I have to do for my children personally. But like if you have been working to serve kids, then um, the other people who want to serve kids, those are the people who are your voters, they're your supporters. And chances are you know a lot of them um, because you have been doing the work. And, and seeing that as powerful instead of focusing on the deficit, I think is really critical. Um, the other thing that I do want to point out is that there are some barriers that don't go away. Like our political system is not going to suddenly stop exposing families. Uh, And so one of the things we talk about in this training is that some of the barriers can go away and some of them can't, but that, you know, it's like, I think of it like a bank. So you put deposits in the reasons to run and then there are withdrawals, the reasons not to run. And at some point you got a balance where there's enough in there to run. Mm -hmm. And and, and it's, it's always going to be hard. There are always going to be challenges. There are always, there's always going to be the chance that you will lose. But when, it's, when it matters to you more that you do it, then it matters that um, you might lose. Then that's, that's when you should run for office. Yeah. I know you, some of the notes you sent over, Kim, talked about how typically women kind of cite childcare and housework as okay. a barrier to running as well. Um, and that women tend to run as their familial obligations decrease, but yes. men generally don't have to consider about it. And I think even to like the 2016 election, like mm-hmm. everyone was asking Hillary Clinton, they're like, well, you just had a grandkid. Like, don't you think being president will interfere with that? And she was kind of mm-hmm. like, no, like I, also, I, I raised answer that question, <laughs> right? Like, how do you answer that question in the way that doesn't make you seem like some sort of like, you know, unfeeling, <laughs> like a harpy, right? You know, I, you know, I think that it's just, it's such a trick question for, for women. It feels like such like a loaded, like, yeah. I, it's a, it's a statement question. It's a, it, the question is not a question. It's, it is about pointing out that, um, right, her womanness means that she's most valuable in the context of caretaking and how dare she take her time away from caretaking to do things like the men work of leading our country. How dare she? And what's really disappointing is how effective those types of criticisms are with voters, particularly when women candidates have young children. There is just this belief that a child will suffer if their mother is not available in a way that apparently they won't suffer when their father's not available to the point that in, in a, in another study by the Barbara Lee family foundation, what they found was that um, voters are in many ways more comfortable with lesbian couples um, with one of the women running for office because there was still another mom. We so found like, it. The, the medical lesbian yeah. privilege. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. The one time the lesbian privilege. Yeah. Great. So yeah. I'm saying, is, please get yourself a good wife so that you can. Yeah. <laughs> this is good. I'm taking notes. This is good. <laughs> yeah. So so go ahead and get that get that under right because who doesn't need a um, a first lady? And so it's. I think that brings back again that 
that women aren't making this up. Women aren't making up that it's harder. Women aren't making up that voters, um, voters will be critical of these things. And women are critical of other women. Women both recognize that they're holding our our sisters to higher standards. Like that there's a double standard. Women recognize that they're they are creating a double standard, and yet they're unwilling to let go of this idea that you're still supposed to be there to tuck your kid in in a way that that a man doesn't have to be. And um, so we got, I guess, work to do. We, we voters, not candidates, we have work to do about how we are willing to see women. You know, another perspective that I saw that I'm not really sure I buy, but I could be wrong, is that uh, just because of the way that, you know, uh, because of traditional gender roles and the way that women are socialized, that women are just somehow less inclined to get into like the dirt of running for office, right? Like they are kind of oh my inflated by like the, the nastiness of politics. And they're just like, we're too like pure and virginal to want to like mm-hmm. hurt and fight and like fucking do this. So I read like the first chapter of a book on this, which means that I've told everyone that they should also read this book. And told them <laughs> but one of the things that it does talk about is how girls, like one of the reasons tied to that, that girls talk behind each other's back is because we are, we are told that so much of our value is social because mm-hmm. how we are succeed, how we are to succeed is by who we are associated with, right? That husband that makes the money that we, we are, like willing to put up with more shit and, um, and willing to put up with worse relationships because that, that is how we find power and values. And, and so I do, I, I see that believably being a factor in women not wanting to be a part of the nastiness. Um, I also just, I don't think that's fun and I don't want to spend my time doing that. So maybe it's also just that, what was it that Andrew Gilliam said that there's, there's, there's no winning when you wrestle with a pig. Oh yeah. Cause, Cause uh, you just get dirty pig, and the pig likes it. The pig likes it. Yeah. yeah. Well, to me, this also feels like one of those examples, you know how for a long time, like the idea of feminism was like women, essentially kind of like behaving like men, right? Mm -hmm. And now we're kind of moving to this place where it's like, no, like women can do things in the way that like maybe women quote unquote want to or I guess Mm -hmm. socialized to essentially. And that's not less valid or less good (laughs) Mm -hmm. than a man does it, right? And so it's like, well, maybe all these male politicians are, you know, muckraking and mudflinging and, you know, throwing each other under the bus, but it's like, well, maybe there's a different way. And because women are socialized different and approach mm-hmm. conflict different and approach ambition different, maybe there's a different way. And maybe it's a better way, right? Like just oh, absolutely. a woman doesn't have to do it in the same way that a man does, even though that seems to be the perception for quote unquote equality, right? Well, for so long, that was the measure of success, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, she's, she's one of the boys, right? She gets in there and she fights like a boy. And, mm-hmm. and, but that's, and that's that's also the infrastructure, right? Like that's what we are currently set up to perpetuate. That's how campaign staffers are trained. That's how people see success and are able to mirror it. So like, absolutely at any point we could just create a new, uh, right. We could create something different and and be different. (laughs) It's just that it's never been modeled. We don't know how it works. And, um, the other people who are invested in it going the other way, will still be trying to do it their way. So, yeah, I think, you know, I talk about this all the time, particularly as, as women are weighing whether or not to get into politics, you know, do I want these hard things? Like there are not a lot of other moms in politics, um, particularly who aren't the candidates. Because mm-hmm. candidates are kind of the, the, uh, the, right, they're the, there's no visuals in a podcast, but they're the, the center, like they are the sun, 
right? They are the um, entity around which everything else circles. Um, but so campaign staffers, the expectation has been for a long time, but that's your full life. You don't have anything else. Like, hope you got someone to watch your dog or you take it to the office. Um, so yeah, there aren't a lot of moms who, who work to elect women. Um, I've met some and it's, it's challenging and it's lonely. And when everyone goes out to drink beers at 10 PM after they finish entering data and like, you're unwilling to do that, you, you don't get the same opportunities, right? You're cut out in the same way. Like it's, it's very, I think much mirrored what you see in the corporate world, um, based on having no corporate experience at all. Um, but having read one of those long articles from the Atlantic or something. (laughs) Um, so I think that, like, absolutely, we can, we can do it differently. But I think it's going to take a few people succeeding by doing it differently for us to even understand what it is and how to replicate it and how to create something different. But yeah, it's possible, for sure. I do want to talk a little bit about um, the barriers that women, in co- women of color in particular mm-hmm. face when it mm-hmm. comes, particularly financially. Uh, you know, I think that it's pretty well known that uh, people of color generally, and Black people in particular, tend to have less generational wealth than your typical white American. So they mm-hmm. don't have necessarily the reserve funds to draw on, um, you know. Obviously, people of color uh, tend to be more likely to work lower paying hourly jobs. And so like the idea of like even making the time or making enough money to be able to like even pay a filing fee for an office mm-hmm. that you want to run for could be a- an issue. I, and I'm curious if that's something that you hear from maybe some of the women of color who show up to your training sessions, Kim. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the worst thing that, things that happens is low wages for elected jobs, um, right? So in Texas, um, you make $7,000 a year if you work the legislature. And that's, that's doable if you're an attorney or right. if you're independently wealthy um, or if you have some other job that allows you to just not show up six months every other year, but also take all the time you need to campaign to keep that job. Um, and so that is that, so low wages is a huge barrier. Um, and you know, when I'm in trainings and someone says, well, what do I do? It breaks my heart that I don't have a good answer. Like, yeah. like we just have to elect people who will do the unpopular thing of raising wages in the city of El Paso. Um, city council members are paid $20,000 a year for a full-time job. And so it's a real barrier and it's, it is something that is felt more by women of color and women who, who are right. Not wealthy and it's right we we have we have to do something about it and it takes leadership so yes i think that that money is a barrier and it is it is felt a lot more by some than others and uh, and it breaks my heart honestly when a teacher is like well how do i do this like i care so much i want to do this and it's like well that's another reason that you're going to have to wait until you're older in your mind is because you have to retire to be able to do oh, this. Gosh, yeah. And so there's a, the longest standing democratic representative in the Texas house of representatives is a woman named Symphonia Thompson. I and know her. <laughs> she, and people call her Miss T and she, <laughs> she's a legend. She will spray water at people at the microphone when what they're saying is stinky. Um, <laughs> I saw like, her the entire legislative session. Yeah. With coat hanger. I was there. Yes. So, so Miss T is, is, is a warrior. And she was at a training that we led in Houston earlier this year. And one of the things that she said when a woman was talking about the need to make money to be able to, and, and right, 
as a single mom to be able to work. And yet she has this deep desire to serve her community. And what Ms. T pointed out was that this system was not made for us. The system was made for white wealthy men to perpetuate white wealth and that, and, and white control. And that every time we challenge that and we try to put ourselves in this system and make it work, we are going to have to work harder until there are enough of us to change how it works. That's something that's really stuck with me as I think a very succinct and, um, and clarifying way to, to look at what we are up against is a, a system that was meant for right a, a dude who had a wife running the farm while he was off, you know, doing the man work of, of being government. And right, as much as as I have talked at length with Kristen about John Adams and, and oh my his, god, get out of my head! That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and his better qualities, um, as well as his vanity, which was ultimately his most crippling uh, feature. So, right, like that's that's who this was made for. Like it was made for the Johns, not the Abigails. Mm-hmm. And and John could only do it because there was an Abigail. And so like Abigail wanting her time is, well, not what this is set up to accommodate. So actually, I'm, that leads me to a different question. Um, so I'm curious, in, in the programs that, that are kind of like fall under your programs director, you know, role at Annie's List, mm-hmm. um, is part of that identifying women that you think would be good candidates and supporting them? So I work really closely with our political director and her name is Monica Gomez. And she is possibly the smartest person that I've ever worked with. And she's amazing. And she is right now like working 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. Um, on a state Senate race that uh, could, could turn uh, Wendy Davis's seat Democratic again. So um, I love her. And she uh, came from New Mexico and took this job last March, so March of 2017. So, um, so like I'm the one who creates the spaces and engages people and gets the conversation going. And then she is the one who kind of takes it from there and, and starts working with the candidates, um, with her knowledge of, of kind of how it works and, and what you have to be willing to, to go through. And, um, you know, I always love it when she comes back from a good meeting and she tells me the story of meeting someone um, because that's like, that's when I'm like, okay, now I, now I need to pay more attention to, to this person because, um, she, I would, she's not cynical at all, but she is certainly someone who's been working in this long enough to, uh, she can tell when, um, when someone's not fully in it or when they're in it for them. Um, and so, you know, it, I've gotten to work with a lot of candidates. Um, I tend to, I tend to work with them mostly on the training pieces and, uh, and then, you know, the communications pieces of those trainings. Um, Monica takes it from there with, with actually consulting on their campaigns. And it's, I, so to answer your question, kind of, <laughs> like, um, I, I'm, I'm the, I'm the pregame. I like, I'm the pipeline into then, you know, the, the deeper consultation. But it's fun. It means that I'm the person. I just get to talk to lots of people, and I've got to train more people to to give the trainings because I can't keep doing all of them. And yet, the idea that there would be someone at a training that I wouldn't get to meet makes me profoundly sad. (laughs) (laughs) But it's impractical, and I have to get over that. Like I have to get over that. But also, it's so sad. What if someone comes to an eighties list thing and doesn't meet me, and then I don't know them? So, so what, when you're kind of recruiting folks to come to these meetings, I mean, where do you go? Like, I mean, how do you identify like 
which group to target or like where to advertise. I, I feel like, yeah. So the nice thing about life since 2016 is that like ladies are all over the internet talking about politics. And so that, so, so Facebook has been a really great so place. Nation. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> There's a Pantsuit Republic, there's Pantsuit Austin, there's Indivisible, there's um, a bunch of groups that have popped up. Um, some of them are fielding candidates. You know, we work with county parties. Um, and in Texas, I think all of the major counties at this point have women county party chairs. Um, yes, it's very exciting. And so, you know, we partner kind of with the system and then we try to find groups that are outside of the system. You know, we always reach out to the universities. Um, we try... <laughs> One of the things that I'll do is when I when someone has come to a training and they were really great, or when someone volunteers with us and they're really great, is I'll ask them, I'll call them and ask them, who who do you know who should run? Um, you know, nice. Monica, and 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 Monica has her other like go to places like realtors, like the board of realtors are great, and you know, go to the big PTAs, or if you're looking for ledge, go to the school boards. Um, but. I think that's going to be one of our big challenges. And one of the things we haven't figured out yet is how do we get the women who are even less connected to kind of the democratic establishment to see that their leadership future is running for office. And I would say more than ever, women are coming to us on their own. Um, so this last cycle, I would say is not necessarily this last sec- cycle has not been reflective of what it has like been like before this cycle, but you know, let's not give up hope that it's not reflective of what's to come. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just know like as I was kind of prepping for this and looking into things, just like looking at the women nationwide who are running, mm-hmm. uh, it's they're generally pretty diverse, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Stacey Adams in Georgia, if she wins, will be the Abrams, first. right? Stacey Abrams? Why uh, not say Adams, but I also thought it was Abrams. So maybe I just wrote that down wrong. <laughs> Listen, do you need do you need Oprah to call you and tell you <laughs> if Oprah wants to call me, that would be fine. <laughs> Oprah's uh, not Oprah's not calling people. She's knocking on their doors right now. I mean, so, if she wants to come to my front door, that's a-okay. Oh, can I tell y'all one thing? I'm gonna I'm gonna put something schmoopy in here for you guys. Okay. So my schmoop is that my five-year-old, my now five-year-old was graduating from pre-K. They had to do a career fair. Like they had to do a career parade, not career fair. That would be even more ridiculous. Um, but they had to do a career parade where they dressed up like what they wanted to be when they were growing up. And Allison's teacher was like, well, she needs to decide. And like there were rules, like you can't be a princess because that's right, statistically very unlikely. Um, also not a career, but I guess maybe it is. So Allison was thinking and she was thinking and she was like, I'm going to be a girl who works at the Capitol. And of course, my heart, <laughs> my heart melted. Of course. Like, and I cried and I tried to look like I wasn't crying because Allison doesn't understand like not sad crying yet. Sure. <laughs> so the idea that I'm crying because I'm happy and not sad. And uh, it was just, it, it was this idea that, and I think to, to the point of one of the things that will make our situation better is that the more women who win and who lead, the more girls will see women winning and leading. Yeah. Yeah. Like Kristen and I, you know, we grew up in a time when Ann Richards was governor. And mm-hmm. what impact did it have on us and our belief about what we could do that there was a woman leading our state when we were in elementary school? Well, Liz is from Dallas, so she grew up there yeah. too good too. <laughs> yeah, but like I don't 
No, Liz. I'm also, <laughs> I'm also, you're like, also a lot younger. Like yeah. I was 11 when Ann Richards was elected, I think. Which means I was five. five. Yeah. No. That's right. No, that's were, wrong. I was, you looking, were not. Yeah. Let's, let's take that back. You were in elementary school. school. I was, you're right. I know what I was thinking. I was thinking about when Ann Richards lost. When yep. We, that's when you were 11. That's <laughs> I was it. Either way, I was young enough that politics were not. On my radar. But, it, but like, it wasn't politics. It was just like, for me, it was like, there's a girl. Yeah. I think I was still so young yeah, that awesome. like, it just wasn't. I think you were like yeah. two when Ann Richards was elected. Yeah. Like, I, like sounds, none of it was registering yeah. for me. Do you know what I mean? That yeah. sounds right. You were too. Um, you are excused from, <laughs> from, from the accountability of knowing that there was a girl governor. And um, I knew there was. I remember seeing it in textbooks, but I also remember having no context for it. Yeah. <laughs> Being like, sure, I guess that happened. Well, and you know, we got paraded around the Capitol as kids. Mm-hmm. Like, because as, as the children of Austin, we were there to remind <laughs> the state of Texas that there were children yes. um, sitting on the Capitol lawn. Um, yeah. So we got, so I think, I think as we're thinking about like, what is it, what does it mean to do better, to, to, to change that trajectory? Mm -hmm. You know, I think the fact that so many women are running right now, it, it matters that we hold on to it. It matters that we don't take the outcomes because some women are going to win and some women are going to lose. It's, it's not going to be like sweeping and monolithic. It's going to right. We are, we are in districts we, women are running in the context of their district and many of these districts have been set up for it to be impossible for a person who has a D behind their name to win. I was that, going to say, yeah. just briefly, if we can just, just like for a teeny tiny second, go down sure. the road of how gerrymandered districts really like how that is keeping women out of office. I know you're going yeah. down, but I want you to dive a little deeper. So gerrymandered districts. Um, and for those of you who have not recently read uh, your 12th grade government textbook, um, gerrymandering is the process of drawing districts to heavily favor one party, the party in power over the other party. And so you, you use strategies like creating a bunch of like 60% Republican and 40% Democratic districts. Um, and, and then like maybe having one that's that where you put all the Democrats in one place. So, so, so it, it's, it's a strategy by which you minimize the impact of the uh, of the party not in power, and um, right minimize the representation of the people who vote for that party, which is where the real problem is. Also, so, side note: the reason it's called gerrymandered is because apparently the uh, the fellow who came up with this idea, the district that he created, looked like a salamander. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and his last name was like Jerry or something, right? Yep. Yes. So it's literally a portmanteau of the man's name and what the district looks like. <laughs> portmanteau? You had out your language arts textbook and your government I textbook, did. Kristen. Thanks. Amazing. Um, so, so one of the things that happens then in a gerrymandered district is that uh, because it's not competitive in the general election, uh, the representative is usually determined in the primary. So this means that the big race to win is the primary. And what we also know about primaries is that primaries tend to be uh, tend to have participants who are the more extreme ends of their party. So right, you don't have the the kind of the moderates, the the middle of the road folks showing up for primaries. You have the people like me on on one end of the spectrum um, who are, you know, every day a little more socialist. And that's fine. That's normal. It's it's where we're headed. But but like you also have the really extreme Republicans. And I think we saw what that looked like in the primaries uh, for last year's 
president or for the last presidential election. And so um, women tend not to be uh, as extreme as the um, men within parties. And uh, that's great. That's a pretty broad generalization, but, uh, and there are of course, huge and disgusting exceptions um, in culture. But- <laughs> Thank you. I was about to do that same thing. Yeah. So, so there are exceptions to that, but, but what this does is that it means that these races are one with a smaller number of voters who tend to be more extreme. And that has done a lot as well to, um, to prevent, particularly in the Republican party, women from winning. And, uh, one of the things again, that I mentioned in a rant earlier that may or may not still be in the official transcript is that, um, if Republican women ran at the same rate, if Republican women were in office at the same rate as democratic women, we would have much, we would be much closer to parity. And I think it is, I think it is both reflective of these gerrymandered districts and like the impact that has, but also um, of the values of each of the parties yep. that, that you see, that you see this division. Um, but there used to be more moderate Republican women. Again, Texas elected Kay Bailey Hutchison, who is no prize, but is, a lot better than listen when I take her over what our options are any day. Uh, a million times. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> would I willingly breathe the same air as her? Probably. Right. Like I wouldn't be just repelled by the idea of being in the same room. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yes. So we talked about, I, I thank you for going into why, how gerrymandering factors into that. Um, so yes, I think it's time to kind of address like, Hey, um, what are some like key things that like, we as a country can do, or maybe like individual organizations or women can do to overcome yeah. some of these barriers that you've addressed. Um, so one of the most critical things we can do, I think, right. Like, like changing any bad situation is acknowledging that it's a bad situation. So I think that a lot of this election cycle since the end of 2016 has been about for the first time having a conversation about representation and women in office. And I, and my hope is that that's going to be, part of our healing. And just as an aside, um, I want to point out how many men have lost the race for presidency and didn't cause us to say, well, I guess men just can't be president. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Yeah. And how many men who've lost the race for president have been told to go take up knitting instead of going back to their Senate seat or something. Anyway. Wait, um, I actually know this answer. It's 44, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> that assumes that only one man was um, ah, I just met so, in the general, but but you're right, yeah. you're so right, yeah. Well, even in the general, oh shit, you're right, we have Perot's to think about, yeah, and, like whatever happened before I was super aware of politics. Like, didn't they used to like remember when Teddy Roosevelt ran for president for funsies? <laughs> no, because I'm not 120. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he was a third party candidate. I listened to the presidential podcast in 2016 when I. Oh, I loved that cool. podcast. What? I loved that podcast. It was Washington yeah. Post. It was great. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so I think one acknowledging that we want parity and that it matters that women lead. It matters that we have government that represents people. It matters that men are only 49 percent of the population, but 80 percent of our government. It right. We we don't have to have that. It matters that we don't have that. So that's, I think is step one. Um, I think the intentional recruitment of women in running for office, women running for office. So um, there was this statistic that was thrown around that women had to be asked seven times to run for office. And again, I feel like it was, it has been often used as a way to reinforce the idea that 
um, women aren't as ambitious, but I, but really I think it's reflective of how much support women feel like they need to run. So Mm -hmm. we need to support women running for office. Uh, we need to to look to groups like Annie's List, like Emily's List, like the groups around um, the country, because there are many others. We're called Sister Lists, which is a little upsetting, but there are groups like this, right? There are groups like the National Group Emerge. Um, there, there are many groups out there that are now starting to look more intentionally at this. And then there are groups like Higher Heights, which looks specifically at recruiting African-American women to run for office. And um, there are, um, I know in Texas, there's Texas Latina list that looks to support Latinas who are running for office. And so uh, there are organizations that are doing the work to, to support, to find women and support them as they do this work. And it can't just be women. Because are these bipartisan organizations? Just off the top of my head, I'm curious. None of the ones that I talk about are bipartisan because okay, like I said, that's I'm fine. Right, yeah. <laughs> Deeply partisan, yes. Yeah. Um, there are some kind of there's there are groups like She Should Run and um there are a few more that are more online. Yeah. I, think I just I, asked I, because we talked about part of the right. the way to get to parity is more Republican yeah. or not that I necessarily yeah. feel like I personally want that to happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just you know, in the interest of uh, mm-hmm. fairness. Some some groups this. are nonpartisan. And going back to distinctions between nonprofits and PACs, um nonprofits are nonpartisan by their ability to have the tax designation of nonprofit. Right. So, so the nonprofit groups are going to be nonpartisan, though they may uh, train people on a specific set of policies that lean one direction or the other. Um, but, but groups like mine are full-on, hard-money partisan. So I think there is a lot to be done with recruiting, recruiting these groups and with parties becoming more reflective. Because, uh, again, there's research out there that shows that the party hierarchical structure tends to produce more male candidates, whereas a networked structure where there's, where it's not the, the up and down, it's kind of the all across and people working together. So kind of like these pop-up groups, like the organizing that's been happening since the 16 election, that actually produces more women as leaders. And so, um, so I think letting go of some of these hierarchies, that, that can be meaningful. And then again, looking at that barrier of money, and, and how can we make it so that people aren't, in particular women, aren't kept out of office because of the financial constraints? Is and the like, answer more PACs? Like, I mean, is I it that simple? Okay. I don't think it's that simple. Um, I don't, uh, I, I feel in some ways like saying more money in politics. Is yeah, I know, right? It's like saying more guns are going to make us safer from guns. Sure, yeah. Right. Like, that's kind of why I'm like, oh, but is it PACs? Is PAC, are PACs going to fix this for us? Look, I'm, I'm not a, so, right. My PAC is one where, right, when you take our money, you are accountable to our values, not to our business bottom line. And so I'm very proud of the work that I do for a PAC. Um, I wish that Beto O'Rourke could manage to say, instead of just no PACs, no corporate PACs, mm-hmm. um, yeah. because I do not enjoy being vilified unnecessarily. I think vilify. that's a great point to make, and I'm glad yeah. that you did. I really do. Um, I don't mean to cut you off. Continue. But no, I just wanted to say like, thank you. Like, an individual who is not wealthy should be able to have their money matter in, mm-hmm. in pursuit of the values they believe in, whatever. I don't think that it's more money. I think, you know, it's looking at the the reform and figuring out, and I'm not an expert in this, but figuring out how to make it more fair. And it's, 
I know there's so much thinking out there on that. And I don't, I don't have all the answers. Um, I do have a thought as well uh, about what we do is um, start encouraging girls to be leaders in elected office. Even if it's um, your friend who is maybe stepping up for the first time in a committee role or is trying something different, um, ask the question. Like, I know, Kristen, you've talked about people encouraging you to run for office, but Liz, has anyone asked you today if you have thought about running for office? Uh, interestingly, I don't think that's a question I've ever been asked. I, When I was younger, people used to tell me I should be a pastor all the time, which like they're kind of the same thing in a lot of ways. There's some overlap there, right? <laughs> in, in but interestingly, I don't think anyone has ever told me I should run for office, but I also don't think I was a particularly politically engaged person until like the last three or four years, really. Well, so many of the skills that I'm sure you have learned uh, <laughs> before you got to the last four years, I would be really valuable to your community. So sure. She's a stage manager, an equity stage manager. That's true. I am that. And so if you can stage manage, um, then I bet that you could sit at a mayor's dais and uh, get all those city council members in line. That's just <laughs> Um, so, so that's what I'm saying is that we, as, as non-current candidates have to one stop judging women for wanting to both, um, have lives as a woman and be in office. We need to, to figure out how not to be, um, super misogynistic and sexist in, in how we view women who are running for office, um, and women's roles. We need to encourage every girl to be a girl who works at the Capitol someday, if that's what she wants. Um, as much as we encourage girls to get in STEM, we need to encourage girls to, to think about, you know, their leadership and what that can look like. And uh, I think, and I know I just said no no more money needs to be in politics, but I think different money. I think that we should, I think that everyone should make a political contribution to someone. Um, I would prefer obviously that it be a woman, but get in the habit of flexing your political power because, right, relationships like are power. That. And like the more relationships we build, the more we will be able to get things done as citizens and create paths to support and be part of lifting up really incredible women as they do run. There's been a lot of <laughs> Twitter posts shared on Facebook and memes about how not being political at this point in time is a privilege because it means that you are not someone who's who feels affected. By right. You can afford not to right. be that deeply invested. So I think this is the moment where I'm not saying if you can't beat him, join him. I'm just saying, figure out how you can proactively use your voice. And if that's knocking on doors, if that's writing a check. <laughs> it feels um, like we're kind of there a little bit though, right? I mean, like I just kind of just to kind of piggyback off of 2016 and and the influence of the Bernie Sanders coalition, right, on mm-hmm. maybe pushing the Democratic Party platform a little bit further left. I think that maybe we could use a similar model to do things like to kind of like model what happens in other countries where we literally set quotas uh, yeah. within like yeah. the party for the, the, the number of women that we're going to you know, put up for empty congressional seats, mm-hmm. whether that's the national or the, or the local level, the state level. I think that we can kind of use that same model to mm-hmm. reach gender parity more quickly. Yeah. yeah. Sure. I, lo- I, I both love the idea of a quota <laughs> and also believe that like the American ethos is such that 
we would we would adhere to a quota if we didn't know that we were adhering to a quota. <laughs> you know okay. what I mean? Like, oh no, I have the perfect analogy for this. It's basically admission into Harvard, right? So like, yeah. racial quotas are a bad thing, but legacies are fine. So, oh, did you watch? Did you watch the Patriot Act on that? I did, and I also listened to a really excellent podcast mm-hmm. uh, called Today Explained. It's Fox's daily yeah. podcast about that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think. It, I, I see the value of quotas and see the impact they've had on other governments, but, but ha- and, and would be totally up for that myself, but wonder what the appetite is for that. Quota sure. is such a dirty word, but I kind of like, I kind of like reframing it as like, I don't know, like justice or something. Okay, right. We, we want to set standards. Yeah. We want to set standards for, for representation in America. And, um, and, and somehow get past the, the white male notion that everything is for them. Um, well, or that like, you know, <laughs> that we've ever been a meritocracy, like literally ever. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> hey, that was, that was my, that was my spot that you took as a, as a, <laughs> a, a qualified person who wasn't me. Oh, um, God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think we have to, we have to not have it be, you know, 26 years between years of the women. So there's a woman and, and obviously like you can cut this if you want to, but there's a woman who um, Annie's list had endorsed as state at, for her as a state Senator, her name's Sylvia Garcia. And she is the democratic congressional congressional candidate who um, won the primary for a district in Houston where the incumbent didn't run. And so she's one of the two Latinas who is very likely to go to Congress from Texas um, because they're running in safely democratic districts. And she spoke actually at that same event where Ms. T spoke and she held up a, a sticker from the 1992 year of the woman. And she said, I ran for the same congressional seat in the first year of the woman. And I lost in the primary to a man. And then, and now in 2018, the next year of the woman, I ran in that primary and won. And there is something so poetic and something so sad about that. Yeah. And she has done amazing things for the city of Houston and for the state of Texas in the time in between that. But, but I think we have to be reticent. We have to stay on top of this. We can't, like I said, we can't let 18 be a blip. We have to continue to care that women are elected. We have to stay political. We have to, <laughs> we have to stay on top of it. And, and we have to stop holding women to higher standards than men. To be, to be worthy of our vote. Um, and as, since we brought up Bernie Sanders a minute ago, I just want to point out how would Hillary Clinton have been perceived if she showed up in a suit that was crumpled with a bird on her head, looking like maybe she yeah. hadn't brushed her hair that day. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying there are... You, uh, listened to our last uh, election episode, right? Yeah. yeah. I feel like that was what I was screaming from the rooftops during the 2016 primaries was Hillary Clinton is being held to a different standard than every male politician in the world. And all of your issues with her are rooted in sexism. And I'm sorry to tell you that white dude who with the Bernie Sanders t-shirt, but Mm -hmm. it's the truth. (laughs) It was, it was the interview on NPR when his campaign manager talked about Hillary Clinton's ambition ruining the country. Oh yeah. Almost. Like I was screaming. I don't know how pregnant I was at that point, but I was like <laughs> alone in my Honda Fitch driving down Burnett Road in Austin, Texas, <laughs> like 
my whole, I can feel it. I can feel the way my body tensed up as I screamed into the steering wheel. Um, because who hasn't had a, a friend or who hasn't been told herself um, that she was too ambitious, mm-hmm. that the idea that she wanted something um, was too, it was too much for her. Why was she being so ambitious? Why was she letting her um, desire for, for something? Why was she, why was she letting that be so disruptive? Well, yeah. Ruined the country. That, yeah. That was, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, is there anything else, Kim, that you want to send our listeners off with uh, before we wrap here? Yeah. Any like events maybe that Annie's List is, is uh, you know, ha- has coming up soon that you want to plug or really anything? I mean, if you want to fly to Texas, I got some trainings coming up. Um, yeah, I say, listen, we, I mean, I think our biggest listenerships are in California, Texas, and New York. So, I mean, yeah. like you're going to reach uh, some people. <laughs> yeah. So I would say as, as far as um, California, Texas, and New York, there are great organizations in um, California, Texas doing this work. The national organization Emerge um, started in California and they look to elect progressive women. They do a, kind of a cohort model. Um, they have chapters in different places. In New York, you have Eleanor's Legacy that's similar to Annie's List. In Texas, we, we are Annie's List. You know, we're doing some Candidate 101 trainings, which are how do you dip your toe in and start thinking about running. Um, by the end of November, we'll be in Fort Worth, Williamson County, and Harris County, which is Houston. Uh, and Williamson County is what's north of Austin. It's the country um, outside of Austin. Sure. Right. No, it's... North of Austin. It's north of Austin. It's, it's where Dell is headquartered. And... Um, where my grandparents both grew up, but that is not interesting or relevant. So the other, um, we'll, we'll also start doing trainings because the, the, what we didn't touch on really in this is, uh, is local elections, the nonpartisan elections. Mm -hmm. And so for most of the major cities in Texas, those happen, uh, with the exception of Houston and Austin, um, those are happening in May of the odd years where (laughs) there are a whole different set of challenges around that. Um, low voter turnout, but usually people know who they're going to vote for. So it is, there, there's a lot happening um, for us. You know, we'll have, you know, events pop up you know, after the election when people are breathing and thinking again. But I, <laughs> but I just, I just, I think what I want to leave people with is the idea that one, if you are a woman listening to this, I hope that at some point you have tried to imagine yourself in office during this conversation and wondered what you would do and what you would be like, because the more you think about those things, the more you talk about those things with your friends, the more actions you take towards being a community leader, the more likely it is that'll happen. And I promise you have something to give your community, even if it doesn't ultimately being end up being through elected office, you have um, talent and passion to give. And that's more important than whatever's on your resume is um, right. What you're good at and what you care about. And also to all listeners, um, please, please do recognize that um, in every election, you're not just voting for the individual running, but you're voting in uh, voting for them in the context of who else they will be with. And so um, the woman running may not be your absolute favorite person that you've ever met in your entire life. She may not be perfect, um, but she's needed in a system where uh, her voice is not currently being heard. And that is, that goes even more so for women of color. And so please, 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 please be thoughtful about not only um, the individuals you're voting for, but the context in which um, they would be serving because 
Um, yes, it is, it is sometimes very easy to like one candidate more than the other, but, but, uh, we are not just voting for, for one person to be who I liked best. We are voting, um, to have representative bodies that make decisions, um, for people who look like us and for people who look not like us. So two things. I, I love that. I was actually going to ask you for your elevator pitch and you (laughs) gave it to me. So that's perfect. And uh, to your to your last point there, uh, uh, one of our mutual friends, a, an old high school classmate, I think, summed it up really perfectly today uh, on my Facebook wall, saying that your vote is uh, not a Valentine; it's a chess move. And I think that's a really great way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I I agree. So thank also thank you guys for what you do for having fun and uh, and. <laughs> And being overly critical and, uh, and in creating the space for us to all uh, acknowledge that we can love something even when it's not perfect. Although I will say I, I have officially ended Love Actually. That is, that is over for oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> it's done. Um, oh, there's nothing... See, I think we both decided we nope. still liked that one. I don't remember what my verdict was, but that's fine. <laughs> I, 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 can't, I can't feel anything in my fingers. I can't feel anything in my toes. It is done. <laughs> however, however, now that, um, now that Will Ferrell was out block walking for Stacey Abrams right before Oprah was doing it. Will Ferrell, um, Will Ferrell. Yeah. So I will be buying Elf again this time on iTunes. <laughs> yes. So there, right, there's, there's so much good. And um, also everything's going to shit. And I have, a, <laughs> I have a lot of feelings in rapid succession. And I'm, I'm really honored that you guys wanted me to come in and talk to you about the stuff I talk to people about. Yeah, I know. I think this was great. And you're full of knowledge. And I appreciate you sharing that knowledge. Uh, Let me tell you something. Having known Kim for 21 years, she really appreciates that compliment. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Kim, thank you so much for joining us and being uh, the, the font of wisdom that you are. Um, Yay. Go, Kim. Thank you again. Um, and I hope everyone really appreciated this because I think this is an important issue. Uh, I will say this is dropping on election day. So if you haven't voted yet. Oh my God. Go what are you vote. doing with your life? Yeah. Go why vote. haven't you voted yet? Stop go. listening. Go vote. Yeah. Come on, guys. Like, geez. Uh, so go vote if you haven't already. And if, if you don't vote, just like you can stop listening to this podcast. Yeah. Now. I'm fine with that, actually. I'm like, fine with listening. <laughs> you and I are not on the same wavelength anymore. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, while you're voting, we're going to remind you that um, we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com uh, slash your fave is problematic. We have a new Patreon patron this week. Her name is Jennifer Edwards. A big thank you to Jennifer Edwards Thanks, for supporting Jennifer. us on Patreon. Uh, we appreciate you and all of our donors. Um, if you want to support us financially, you can do so. Uh, and we really appreciate you. Thank you. Um, as always, a uh, big thank you also to Sierra and the Radicals for our theme song. It's called I'm Doing Just Fine. It's off of the album Somewhere Between Here and There. Just go buy it. They're awesome. That's, you know, we, we all know this at this point. Um, you can get at us on Twitter and Instagram at podcastyfip. You can email us at problematicfavepodcast at gmail.com. And then you should join our Facebook group. It's just called Your Fave is Problematic Podcast Group. Uh, so talk to us there about, I don't know, about voting this week, I guess, if you're in the US and you're voting. So like, let us know. We want to know. Um, and yeah, I think that's it. Uh, remember, everyone, your fave is problematic. But you don't have to be. Stay woke. On that notice, kids. <laughs> <laughs>